morning. Uh, welcome to those who are watching online. Uh, this morning we're beginning a four-part series um, for Advent. Hopefully you're, you've received at this point the, uh, the devotional, and I hope that um, you'll be able to take the time to, uh, to meditate on the scripture, to meditate on the devotions, and to prepare your hearts for the coming and the birth of, of Jesus. The word Advent uh, means arrival or coming. And as Christians, we traditionally take this time to remember the incarnation of Jesus, which is the moment in time when the second person of the Trinity took into union with himself a complete human nature apart from sin. This is a significant moment in history. And the season of Advent is an opportunity to slow down and to think about this meaningful event. It's a season of waiting, of anticipating, of preparation, and of spiritual reflection. As I've been preparing for this series, I've been wrestling a little bit with this, this question, what are we anticipating? The birth of Jesus over 2,000 years ago. So here, here are three thoughts. What are we anticipating? We anticipate the celebration, the celebration of the birth of Christ. This anticipation allows us to remember Jesus and to prepare our hearts. Important events require preparation. And one of the themes I'd like to explore this morning is how we can prepare our hearts for the arrival of the King. The incarnation of Jesus marks the beginning of the inauguration of the kingdom of God. In fact, Christ's life of obedience, his death, his resurrection, his ascension are parts of the means by which he inaugurated the kingdom of God. Celebrating the inauguration of a king requires preparation, and anticipation helps us prepare with earnestness. A second thought is that we anticipate the accomplishment of the promises of a faithful God in Christ Jesus. And one final thing that I'll mention uh, th this morning is the, the anticipation of the glorious return of our King Jesus and the consummation of the kingdom of God. The year 2023 was an important year for the British monarchy. On May the 6th, King Charles III was crowned as the new monarch of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. The date for the coronation was set seven months before, and you can only imagine the amount of preparation that went into the ceremony. Uh, there was a coronation committee that had to oversee the planning, a coronation claims office that had a responsibility of delegating the roles, uh, transportation arrangements had to be made, invitations had to be sent out to all these uh, special and elite guests. This was the height of pomp and circumstance in the British monarchy. And perhaps some of you got up in the wee hours of the morning to, uh, to watch it. I, I didn't. Uh, but I did watch some of the highlights afterwards. And one of the, one of the, the poignant moments for me is, is after the king is crowned and walks out in a, in a procession, and the people stand and sing the national anthem, God save the king. I appreciate the recognition of the need for God to save the king in this national anthem. And I find it even more interesting 
when you contrast King Charles III, or whichever king, and King Jesus. So earthly kings need God to save them, but Jesus the King is God who came to save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you for the inauguration of your kingdom with the coming of Christ Jesus. This morning we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, that we would, um, that we would hear you, Lord, and that you would transform our lives so that we would know you better and love you more and serve you uh, fully. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The main idea this morning is, is this. The significance of the incarnation of Jesus is rooted in history and fulfills divine promises. The inaugural kingship of Jesus inevitably calls us to respond to him. This morning, I'd like to dive back into the history of God's plan of redemption in the Old Testament. And I want to give a, a very brief overview of God's history um, for his people and his faithfulness despite his people's unfaithfulness. God had a plan for his people. As we, as we go into scripture, less than three chapters into the Bible, we run into the root of the problem of humanity. Sin enters the world in the garden when Adam and Eve fail to faithfully obey God. Sin enters the world in the perfections of creation and this unimpeded perfect relationship that they had with God, Adam and Eve decide to follow their heart, choosing for themselves what's right and wrong and disobeying the goodness of God. And there's this pattern of events throughout human history that always seems to contrast God's goodness in our wicked ways. His faithfulness in our unfaithfulness, his forgiveness and the hardness of our hearts. It's a discouraging portrait of our inability to follow God. Even the champions of the faith in the Old Testament, people like Abraham, Moses, or David, were deeply flawed, and sin marked their lives in significant ways. When we look at both the Gospels of Matthew and of Luke, we discover these genealogies that list all sorts of different people that are a part of Jesus' ancestry. Jesus was a Jew with an identity rooted in the history of the Jewish people. It's important to understand the complex history of this people and to see how Israel worked in God's plan of redemption and worked into the promise of the Messiah through Jesus. We go back to the beginning of the people of Israel. God called a man named Abram to follow him to a promised land far away from his father's country. Genesis 12 Verse 2 and 3 says this, And I will make of you a great nation. The Lord speaks to Abraham. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God made an everlasting covenant with Abram whom he renamed Abraham. 
promising, promising him posterity to bless the world, even though he and his wife Sarai were barren. God chose Abraham in order to fulfill his redemptive plan for all nations. But even Abraham doubted God's promise. The narrative continues through the rest of Genesis, through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, known as the patriarchs. God reaffirms his covenant with each generation. The story also introduces the 12 sons of Jacob who form the 12 tribes of Israel. Throughout these stories, we see God's faithfulness and the unfaithfulness of his people. Move forward a few years, the descendants of Abraham are now enslaved in Egypt. They cry out to God. God hears their cry and raises up a, pro a prophet, Moses, who leads them out of slavery. And this exodus becomes a pivotal event, demonstrating God's power, his faithfulness, and intention to form a people for himself. At Mount Sinai, God establishes a covenant with the Israelites, providing them a moral and ceremonial laws that would perpetually remind them that they were a people chosen and set apart, belonging to God. This covenant reflected God's desire for a holy people. Yet, an entire generation of Israelites never entered into the promised land because they grumbled and they sinned against God. When the Lord eventually does lead the people of Israel into the promised land, we see through the book of, of Judges, this cyclical pattern of the Israelites falling into sin, facing oppression, crying out for deliverance, and God raising up a judge to rescue them. This highlights the need for a more enduring solution to the people's spiritual condition. Eventually, the people would ask of God that he would provide them a king. The first king, Saul, fails to remain faithful to God, and God anoints a new king, King David. And with King David, God makes a covenant with him and promises an everlasting kingdom and a descendant who will reign forever. Now, due to the continuous disobedience, even with the king of the people of Israel, God allows the Babylonians to bring the people of Israel into exile, take them away from, from their land and from the temple. That's destroyed. God spoke through prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, which we'll be looking at shortly, who offer messages of hope, but also of judgment. After the exile, the remnant of Israel returns to Jerusalem. And in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see the, the details of the rebuilding of the temple. But we see the need for a spiritual renewal. And finally, at the end of the Old Testament, with the prophetic book of Malachi, after we have 400 years of silence with no prophets, no word coming from the Lord. And this time of silence sets the stage for the climactic arrival of the Messiah. This morning, we're going to look at a few, a few pictures, a few windows of God's promise of a Messiah. The promise of a person. I'd like you to picture a grand mansion filled with Wonderful architecture and art, intricate designs, beautiful furniture, uh, music, dancing, joy, unity, a place that you want to live and a place where you want to go. But here's the problem. We can't go inside yet. We can only get a sense of what's going on inside this mansion by looking into some windows 
to get a glimpse of what's going on inside. What I'd like to do is look through some windows of the Old Testament, some prophecies, some signs concerning the Messiah, get to get a picture of God's redemptive plan. These windows give us together a picture, though not perfect and not fully complete, of Jesus, the Messiah. They specifically point out key pieces that come together and undeniably point to Jesus. In 1874, the German scientist by the name of Emil Fischer proposed a model to explain how enzymes function. Enzymes are, are these wonderful proteins that are found in our bodies and all sorts of, of living organisms and allow critical biochemical reactions to happen. And in his model, Fisher proposed that enzymes work like a lock and key system with the specific substances attaching themselves to a very specific enzyme to allow the function to happen. The enzyme has very special, very specific chemical grooves in which the substance will attach itself. The wrong substance won't uh, connect to the wrong enzyme. And so this system, this lock and key system, is very specific. The human body being wonderfully made has approximately 1,300 of these, of these enzymes that allow, uh, that allow life to happen. And the prophecies I would suggest concerning the Messiah were very specific. Like an enzyme with this lock and key mechanism, only one person can perfectly fit all the grooves of the whole picture of the Messiah from the Old Testament. So allow me to share with you this morning three windows, three pictures of the description of the Messiah coming from the Old Testament. The first picture is from Isaiah 7, 14. The picture is of God, Emmanuel, God with us. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Matthew, this prophecy is cited uh, when an angel appears to Joseph. Now, this prophecy includes two things that I want to mention. The first is a specific manner in which this sign would happen. And the second is a description of the name of this Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, there are several occasions when God intervened and opened the womb of barren mothers. This happened to Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who gave birth to Isaac. It happened to Rachel, wife of Jacob, who gave birth to Joseph. It happened to Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, who gave birth to Samuel. However, in all these instances, the Lord miraculously opened the womb so that conception from the fathers would take place. And what's particular about this specific instance from this specific sign is that the Lord is conceiving from a virgin. There's no conception from an earthly father, but from a divine one. The virgin birth is completely di different from anything else and falls into this uh, as part of one of these grooves of this lock and key system that points to the uniqueness of the birth of Jesus. We also see the description of the Messiah, Emmanuel. Consider this, the same God who created the universe came into the world to be with us. 
God loved you and loves you so much that he wrote himself into the redemptive story so that we would know the author of creation. God entered human history to bring salvation and to reconcile us to himself. There's this wonderful hymn that I'm sure we'll sing throughout this Advent season, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's, it was written by the, the great theologian Charles Wesley, and in the second verse, he wrote this timeless truth. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Now think of this contrast between the Messiah, God with us, and the, the Greco-Roman gods of the times when Jesus was born. These gods in this mythology, this mythology were concerned with themselves, constantly infighting, uh, though sometimes they would come down to earth. It was usually of their, their own accord, and it was usually for errands of mischief and, uh, uh, rather than peace. And in this mythology, Humans regularly had to find ways to appease these fickle and unpredictable gods through deals and, and sacrifices. But God Messiah, Jesus Messiah, came to be with us, coming into the confines of his very own creation, not to bring vengeance or war, but to reconcile the lost. Brothers and sisters, God is with us. God is with us because he came to dwell with us. He's not a distant deity in the heavens far away. God's with us because he's not against us. He came to be with us so that we would no longer be his enemies, but so that we could be reconciled to him. Our little daughter, Miriam, is, is growing up extremely fast. And one of the things that, um, that we're noticing is that she uh, is very aware as when we're absent, Marie and I. And... Uh, in the morning, we have this little routine where when she, she'll wake up, we'll maybe hear a little cry, and then we'll hear her door open, and then the little pitter-patter of her steps running down the hall, and then a little knock on the door, and she'll creak open the door and come to bed and say, climb into bed, mama. And uh, so she usually climbs into our bed, and we have this wonderful little routine where uh, we'll spend some time together, sometimes even do devotionals together. But there are mornings where I have to be away a little bit earlier and she'll come into bed and, I, and I'm not there. And she says, where's Papa? Papa partir? And I'll hear about it later, how she, um, she was crying and she was upset that, uh, that I wasn't there. And there's been a teaching opportunity with our little Miriam because she's learning that Mama and Papa sometimes will not be there. But it's an opportunity to teach her the simple but reassuring truth that God is always there. God is always present and willing to hear us. And if you're here today because you're feeling discouraged, um, perhaps you have a weight of anxiety, a burden of financial instability or uncertain health, know that God is with you. The author of the universe cares for you. The knowledge that God is with you may not take away your struggles or your pain, but will you just acknowledge him as Lord? Would you cast on him your, your burdens and rest in the hope of a life not alone, but that he is with you? When Jesus ascended to be with the Father, he left us the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. He's given us a direct access to the throne of grace. And so we are not left alone. God is with us.
We could probably spend an entire morning talking about God Emmanuel, but I'd like to move on to the next window, the window of the ruling shepherd. Reading from Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 to 5. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are, not, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, you shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is another prophecy that's, um, that's quoted in Matthew. At this time when Herod is visited by the, by the Magi, um, and Herod asks his chief priests and scribes, who is the one, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And so the birthplace of Jesus is another of these specific notches in the key pointing to the legitimacy of Jesus as Messiah. And notice here the contrast between the legitimacy of Jesus as king and the illegitimacy of Herod and the rule of many of these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who had been appointed there by Herod. The purpose of Herod's inquisition was not to worship the true king, but was born out of a fear of subjugation to the true Messiah, recognizing even his own legitimacy. And what about you? How do you respond to the Messiah ruler? Our sinful tendency is to reject lordship of anyone except our own. Or maybe only accept it when it's convenient to certain parts of our lives to be ruled. Yet, he asks us to join his flock, to dwell in peace, to dwell in eternal security. Would you consider the areas of your life that are not fully surrendered to Messiah, ruler, to Jesus? Give them up to him. Perhaps you're here today having never taken a decision, a true decision to follow the ruler of your, of your life uh, in the person of Jesus. Today is a day of salvation and I invite you to choose him. The prophecy doesn't end with this idea of simply a ruler, but a shepherd ruler. The word shepherd is mentioned over 40 times in scripture. There's two types of shepherds that we find in, in, in history and in the Bible. We have true shepherds and hirelings. True shepherds had the responsibility of naming their sheep, and the sheep would respond to the shepherd's voice. The shepherd would also identify each one, even though um, sheep might look the same to, to all of us. Um, but the shepherd would recognize each, each sheep the true shepherd had the responsibility of guiding his sheep to green pastures and watching them, protecting them. He would protect them at night, leading his sheep into a pen. And since there was no door, the shepherd would be in the door, protecting the sheep from uh, wolves, from lions at night. And if anything was to get to the sheep, the shepherd was willing to lay his own life down to protect his flock. And it's not an accident that the Messiah is described as shepherd. Jesus later himself describes himself in John chapter 10 as the shepherd Messiah. 
John chapter 10, verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The Messiah knows his sheep. He cares for them. He provides for them. He laid down his life for them. He shall be their peace. Do you know his peace? Do you know the security of being tended by the ruling shepherd? The final window that I'd like to to look into is the window of the, the Messiah portrayed as the righteous branch. Now, this, this picture is encapsulated through three different prophets, through Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Zechariah. We're going to start and end with Jeremiah, but we're going to get a brief picture of, of each of the, um, the ways these, port- these, these prophets portray the righteous branch. In Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The prophet Jeremiah lived during very troubled times. Uh, During his life, he saw the Assyrian Empire crumble and he saw the political, social, moral, financial, spiritual decay of the kingdom of Judah uh, that eventually led to uh, the nation's demise and exile to Babylon and the destruction of Solomon's temple. It's presumed that Jeremiah died in Egypt where he had been taken there against his will by some of his uh, fellow countrymen after witnessing the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah witnessed the end of the Davidic line. So this idea that God's promise of an eternal kingdom from the line of David, who he had just seen, ended, might have seemed like a broken promise. Now, I'd like to go and look at at Isaiah's prophecy to paint a fuller picture of of this righteous branch. Isaiah's uh, prophecy is also seemingly contradictory to the promise to David. But Isaiah resolves this tension through, again, this imagery of a righteous branch. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. In this picture, we have first a tree, then a stump, then a shoot, and then a branch. The tree of David's kingship is cut down to a stump with the Babylonian empire ending the line of kings. Growing up, we had this, uh, this tall silver maple in, uh, in our backyard. Um, silver maples are notorious for their, their weak structure, very prone to breaking. And during the ice storm of 1998, the tree fell over because of the weight of the ice. My dad had the, the rest of the tree cut down to, to a stump. One other characteristic, however, of silver maples is that they grow quite quickly. And because we didn't get completely rid of the root system, within a couple of years, 
a shoot had grown out from the stump. And before you knew it, we had a tree that had grown almost fully to the height of the previous tree that had fallen before it. There's this picture of hope, of life sprouting from a seemingly dead stump. This is the hope that Isaiah and Jeremiah portray with the coming of the righteous branch. From the line of kings seemingly dead, there will be made alive through the righteous branch. And finally, the prophet Zechariah puts the finishing touches on the picture of the righteous branch. In Zechariah chapter 3, um, we read that uh, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And a little bit later on in chapter 6, Zechariah says this, And I say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from, this, from his place and shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. What's interesting in Zechariah's picture of the righteous branch is that this branch would see a king rise up, but also a priest. And it's important to understand that the roles of priest and king were very strictly separated during the first temple period. None of the Davidic kings could be priests, and none of the priests could be kings. The priest's role was to mediate between God and man, and the king's role was to rule with justice. The Messiah, the righteous branch, the one who is the Lord our righteousness, is the person who fulfills the role of king and of priest. And he would remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. So to conclude, as we anticipate the celebration of the coming of Jesus, how are you preparing your hearts? Traditionally around this time, there's a great work of music that uh, Marie and I love so much called The, the Messiah uh, by George Friedrich Handel. It was written in, in the 1700s. Handel used a compilation of scriptural passages and created a piece that takes us from Israel's uh, prophecies, namely Isaiah's prophecies, uh, all the way through Christ's birth, his passion, leading to the final eternal acclamation of the Messiah. It's a massive piece of work. It's, a wonderful, it's wonderful music. Uh, it's, it's the piece of work where we find the Hallelujah Chorus. Um, and this is a text that comes from Revelation 11 and Revelation 19, and it's as follows. It says, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. According to tradition, at the London premiere in 1743, the King George II stood up during this course, apparently being so moved by the proclamation of Christ as King, the proclamation of Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And by standing, he was demonstrating an acceptance that he too was a subject of the Lord of Lords. 
Yes, even the monarch of the mighty British Empire, Empire of the 1700s could recognize that he too was a subject of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so royal protocol dictates that when the king stands, everyone stands. And it's become a tradition that when the Hallelujah Chorus is, is performed in churches and um, symphonic halls around the world, people will stand. Is your life fully surrendered to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Would you ask him to reveal to you the areas of your life that are not fully surrendered to him? One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we anticipate the celebration of his first coming. We also anticipate the glorious return of his second coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus, our Messiah. God with us. The ruling shepherd. The righteous branch. Lord, prepare our hearts. During this season, draw us close to you. Remind us of the goodness of your plan of salvation for us all. Remind us that your purposes are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Lord, we pray that um, as, as, we, um, as we're in this season of waiting, Lord, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus um, and give him all the glory and all the praise in all that we do.